<clears throat> Lord, we thank you for your word, that it is truth, and we pray that you would open our eyes to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm gone a lot this summer. Uh, the Advent's trying to get rid of me. Uh, in fact, uh, I don't think that we're actually doing anything strictly vacation, uh, but uh, next Sunday, some Adventers and I are leaving for Rwanda, and so we'll be in Rwanda for 10 days, and uh, Lauren and I are having an overnight layover in Doha, Qatar. So um, uh, they have some training camps they want me to look at, and, uh, and so I'm going to the Arabian Peninsula, and uh, it's a joke. So I'm going, and then we're going to Kigali from there, and we'll see Sam and the diocese that we've had a partnership with, and then in July we'll be in, um, we'll be in the choir tour at the end of June, and then in July we're taking the trip to Germany, and then in August I have a small uh, sabbatical. Normally they last four months. But I'm afraid of what might happen around here if I'm gone for four months. Uh, so uh, I'll only be gone for about four weeks, and I'm going to go over to England uh, to do some research on something uh, I'm interested in. So, um, so I'll see you when I see you. Okay. All right. Well, this morning uh, we're walking through. We have got lots of great people subbing in uh, this summer, so you'll be all right. We're looking at Acts chapter 17, beginning with the first verse. This is Paul and Silas as they head to Thessalonica. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city and the authorities were disturbed when they had heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. The Word of the Lord. Okay. So Paul and Silas have left Philippi, and you remember the great story of the Philippian jailer. They were in prison, and uh, the earthquake happened, all the prisoners left except for Paul and Silas, uh, who uh, kept the Philippian jailer from uh, killing himself. And uh, then they witnessed to he and his family, and they became Christians. And then they were uh, beaten publicly, and they are sent on their way, uh, and they continue to work down the northern coast of uh, Greece, and they end up in Thessalonica. And when they arrive there, they do what is their custom, which is they go to the local synagogue. Uh, You notice that they don't stop at Amphipolis or Apollonia. Uh, 
uh, because there is no synagogue there. There's not any evidence that there ever was a synagogue there, and they've dug it up pretty well. And so they continue on their journey, and they get to Thessalonica, and they go into the Sabbath, and they reason with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Now, what is the subject of Paul's discussion with the synagogue? Now, he uses a very interesting word here. What does it say that Paul did with the Jews there at the synagogue, as well as the God-fearing Greeks? God-fearing Greeks are those who are not Jewish, uh, but... um, but fear God and are part of the Jewish community, uh, but many of them don't keep the dietary laws, have not been circumcised, and yet uh, are called uh, God-fearers. And so what is this interesting word? What does Paul do uh, with these Greeks and these Greek Jews? He reasons with them. Now, I don't know about you, but I found people to be very unreasonable. Uh, And if I've ever tried to sit down and reason with somebody, it's uh, I might as well be trying to witness to a duck. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that God can't use our words uh, and open the hearts of those who hear. Uh, but you see that this kind of reason is not simply trying uh, to convince, uh, but what is this reasoning rooted in? What's the central uh, foundation? Where is the commonly agreed to gathering place uh, for this reasoning? From the Scriptures, right, from the Scriptures. So Paul starts there and begins to work out. Uh, This uh, is very reminiscent, if you have your Bibles, and you look at Luke chapter 24, uh, in the 27th verse, you remember the two unnamed disciples leaving Jerusalem on the walk to Emmaus, and as they're going along, uh, Jesus appears to them, but they don't recognize Him. And it says in verse 27, "...and beginning with Moses and all the prophets..." Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then he goes and shares a meal with them. And they said to each other after he had vanished from their sight, verse 32, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? He opened, he he made apparent, he made known what was once veiled and shut Jesus had made apparent to them in the same way that God the Holy Spirit used Paul uh, to open up the Scriptures uh, to those who were in the synagogue there in Thessalonica. It's absolutely important because if Paul had tried to put himself out there and say, I want you to agree with me simply because I said so, uh, he would be laughed out because we know uh, that Paul was actually not a very strong preacher. Uh, And in fact, if he's just been beaten in Philippi and survived an earthquake and spent some time in jail, probably not the most attractive. Like, he doesn't have the Joel Osteen hair, right? It's not working for him there in Thessalonica. Uh, He's probably pretty bruised and battered, uh, and so he's not much to look at. He's not much of a preacher. He's not very eloquent by his own admission, Uh, and yet he knows that if anybody is going to come to know God, that he needs to open up the Scriptures to them. John Calvin has a wonderful little uh, commentary on this passage. He says, Luke says that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Therefore, the proofs of faith are to be sought only from the mouth of God. When we discuss human affairs, human arguments have their place. But in the doctrine of faith, only God's authority must reign, and we must rely on it. Everyone admits this. 
but few people listen to Him when He speaks in the Scriptures. But if the Scriptures come from God, teaching and learning must derive only from that source. And people must be devilishly mad to deny that we can be certain of anything from the Scriptures and that we must therefore depend on human opinions. Was Paul right in his method of reasoning or not? The Jews admitted Paul and bore with him when he reasoned from the Scriptures. But others look on it as laughable for people to cite Scripture, as if God's message were unclear and ambiguous there. Also, there was much more light in the Scriptures today. The truth of God shines more clearly than in the Law and the Prophets. For in the Gospel Christ, the Son of Righteousness, shines on us with perfect brightness. So faith can be based on nothing but the Word of the Lord. We must take our stand on its evidence alone in all controversies. Now, Paul is obviously, I mean, Paul, uh, John Calvin is obviously writing in the context of the Reformation and all the debates that are going there. And one of the great cries of the Reformation was to go back to the Bible. It was a really radical idea to believe that the Holy Spirit of God could speak to anybody uh, apart from the mouthpiece of the church. So this idea of getting the Bible in people's hands so that they could read it in their own language uh, was not only controversial, it got people killed. Uh, Unless you think Henry VIII was a good man, uh, he was not. He was a terrible individual. In fact, he sent an assassin uh, to continental Europe to assassinate John Wycliffe for what? Translating the Bible into English. In fact, one of his wives, I think it was... um, Catherine Howard, no, it's Catherine Parr. Catherine Parr uh, actually held a secret Bible study in Hampton Court Palace when she was married to Henry VIII. I don't know what they were doing. They had their Bibles out, and then they'd come and they'd throw their knitting over it or something like that, or, or I, I don't know how they got away with it, uh, although Henry, I think, was aware of a lot of that stuff. Uh, but uh, this idea of the Bible in English, Henry really didn't like, and so when the Great Bible was published, It was a real radical thing, and it required that every parish church in England have a copy of the Bible there in the church. And what did they do with it? They chained it. Why? Because people wanted to steal it, right? We forget how accessible, literally speaking, God's Word to us is today. I mean, you can go out on the table and get a copy of it. Uh, If you're, you know, you... It's actually perfectly appropriate if you're in a hotel room to take one from the Gideons. Uh, That's the whole idea. Uh, So God's Word is incredibly accessible uh, in today's world, but back in even the time of the Reformation, uh, it was the province of the church and the church alone, and it was up to the church to interpret to the people what it is that they were to believe. And so it was a radical notion to say, not only do we want to get the Word of God into your hands, but we want you to read it for yourself and to pray and trust that the Holy Spirit of God will lead you into all truth. Right? That you actually are able to reason uh, from the Scriptures uh, what it is that God is saying uh, to us. And it's amazing to me that in the great controversies of the church, With few exceptions, we always fight about what is actually abundantly clear from the Scriptures. We never, almost ever, fight about that which is sort of ambiguous and and nuanced. We have our disagreements. The only one that I can really think of that actually came to the point of of killing people uh, was in the whole Anabaptist controversy 
where uh, the established church would take the Baptists and give them what they called a second baptism. They, they drowned them. Uh, and uh, so pretty uh, significant. Uh, now, that, uh, that, that's an exception, but most of the things that the church was fighting about, whether it's the nature of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He's done for us, or justification by faith, the Bible is, is fairly clear uh, about those things, and yet uh, those are the things that we find ourselves getting bogged down into. Why? Because St. Paul says elsewhere that our minds are veiled so that we cannot see the gospel. We cannot discern Christ as He actually is. And so Paul, every time he goes into the synagogue, he does the same thing. What does he preach? He preaches Jesus Christ and Him alone. In fact, after reasoning from the Scriptures, he says, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you, He's the Christ. He's the promised Messiah. Now, this... Uh, you know, on the surface of it, you would think that witnessing to the Jews would be easier than witnessing to unbelieving Gentiles. Why? They have a history, right? They're a people of the book. They, you start talking about Messiah, and they know all about it, right? It, it wasn't, they didn't, you know, I, I don't know, how many of you have a book on your bedside table right now? And now here's the real honest part. How many of y'all have the Bible, and you read it every night on the bedside table? Kathy, you're a better Christian than I am. Uh, I've got Mad Magazine. Just kidding. Uh, but uh, what we forget was, for them, they didn't have the option of whatever has just won the Book of the Year award. I mean, they had the Scriptures. Uh, that's what they read together. That's what they talked about together. Their whole lives were built around uh, their religion, uh, the timing of the calendar, everything uh, was centered around that. And so uh, the Jewish people understood not just that there was a Messiah that was coming, uh, but the need uh, for a Messiah. And so whenever you start talking about the Messiah, you would expect that they would listen with great eagerness because they had a, a reverence for the Scriptures. They were waiting for the promised Messiah. And even Jesus himself, you know, when you get to those points uh, in some of the Gospels where it talks about uh, the genealogy, I mean, I kind of shut down, right? Every once in a while, there's a name that jumps out that kind of excites me, like, oh, I know who that is uh, from the Old Testament. Uh, but most of the names you think, eh, I don't know who that is. Uh, but to a Jewish reader, they are of supreme importance. Why? Where was the Messiah to come from? From the line of David, right, uh, from the line of David. And so that genealogy would have been important to them as well. And yet we read, some of them were persuaded, which means what? Not many, but some. Uh, Andrew, can I ask a quick question? Sure. Obviously, Jesus and Paul are referring to the Old Testament. That's where they were, that was, what was being revealed. Right. In the Reformation, was there a more concentration on the New Testament, or was it you know, just the whole shooting match? No, it was the whole shooting match. In fact, that was one of their, uh, one of the big things about reformers is the problem of elevating one part of Scripture over the other, uh, not actually interpreting them in light of one another. So there are parts of the Bible that we call antinomies, which means that they almost seem like they're at odds with one another. And you think, well, okay, which is the prevailing 
or what is what we should go with. And again, these are not big, significant issues where anybody's salvation is on uh, the line. Uh, but things like um, there's every indication just using baptism ex as example, like with the Philippian jailer, who was baptized? His whole household, right? And elsewhere you read that. So is it possible that that children were baptized. We know that children were baptized in the early church after the writing of the New Testament. Um, but it's very specifically said that adults certainly are baptized. It never goes out of its way to mention that children are. So how do you interpret that? And so the Reformers worked really hard uh, through both the Old and New Testaments and didn't want to, one, uh, there was a propensity amongst some to simply disregard the Old Testament and say, well, that stuff doesn't, doesn't this sound familiar? That doesn't apply to us today because we're enlightened 16th century individuals. But it's what Jesus relied on. And that was what Jesus would have relied on. But by God's grace and the Holy Spirit, uh, God uh, brought us a new covenant of mercy and grace through Jesus, speaking through the apostles and giving us uh, His Word as we read it now. And so... As is the case uh, today, uh, some of them per were persuaded, uh, not many, but some. And what was their response? Well, there's actually, let's, let's stop and, and go back to the message again. One of the problems that we had in the Reformation that we have now and has plagued the church ever since is this notion, and I've heard, I was in a conversation once, uh, and a, it was a church meeting, which are my least favorite things on the face of the earth. It wasn't a church meeting here. It was somewhere else. Uh, but they were talking about a, a modern um, hymn uh, that they had a really hard time with. And uh, it's a wonderful hymn uh, by a man named Stuart Townend. And uh, there's a line in it that says, uh, And on the cross where Jesus died, uh, the wrath of God was satisfied. And this individual said, I don't like that. And I said, well, tell me about what you think of Jesus' death. And he began to talk about how the story of Jesus was a tragic mistake, that the death of a good and decent man who was simply misunderstood uh, by the authorities. Now, I can understand you saying that if you're just looking at the story of Jesus from a surface level. Was it unjust that he was crucified? Yes, but in order that justice might be done, did he die? Was it unfair? Yes, but it was in order that we might not be judged in light of our own sin. And so that's why Paul is saying here to the Thessalonians, it's necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. It's necessary for us. It's not as if God looked down on that day when he stood before Pontius Pilate and thought, this isn't how I thought it was going to go down, right? But from the very foundations of the world, this plan of salvation had been set into motion. And throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, you hear it. You hear it. So it's not just, oh, well, the New Testament is gospel and the Old Testament is just the law. Not at all. Even when Adam and Eve are banished out of the Garden of Eden, we hear uh, God talking about the one who would come that the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. Even as, there, as, as the fall is, is coming into full swing, God already has his plan of salvation set uh, into motion. And so uh, if you have an understanding that 
Jesus' death was just a tragic mistake, that he was just a, a political uh, martyr, uh, then I can understand why you don't think that Jesus' death accomplished very much. I get it. Uh, I get it. Uh, but if you understand uh, what the scriptures say about Jesus' death, that he is the lamb that takes away uh, the sins of the world. Uh, it doesn't mean that we don't grieve it, that the thought of the cross doesn't move us. But isn't it strange? Uh, this is a good, I mean, if you're a Christian, you get this, where on the one hand, you're overwhelmed and grieved when you think about Jesus dying on the cross, but there's this strange sensation of overwhelming gratefulness and joy that Jesus died on the cross. Right? It, it is where justice and peace kiss, as the psalmist says. So it's a pretty uh, remarkable thing, and it's understandable that we can't make heads or tails of it because even the disciples couldn't make heads or tails of it. And yet, it was necessary uh, for Jesus uh, to die. It was necessary for God to take on flesh and dwell amongst us. And so uh, I'm actually preaching uh, about this next week what is the role of your pastor from Galatians chapter 1? Uh, and Paul says there that even if an angel of the Lord comes to you and preaches you a different gospel, they are to be accursed. So I'm actually going to say in the sermon that if I start preaching a different gospel, even if it comes to physically keeping me out of the pulpit, you should do that. Now, don't kill me. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, just if you got to Take me down. Take me down. Why? Uh, because Paul understands that it's a life and death issue. We're talking about the eternal consequences, and he preaches with compassion, right? These are his people, and of all people, he says, I'm the what? Chief of sinners, right? I was the one who was persecuting Jesus. I was the one who was murdering Christians, and yet God in his mercy saved me, and because of that, now I'm going to places where people don't want me, and I am trying to be all things to all men in order that some might be saved. And so in this case, some were persuaded. Now, this word uh, in Greek, it says some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Uh, that doesn't mean that they said, well, well, we'll hang out with you while you're here. The Greek word actually means that they threw in their lot. They threw in their lot with Paul and Silas. They became allies and they shared the fate of the group, right? they, which means what? They gave themselves up. Uh, they gave themselves over uh, to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, they didn't just say, hey, we'll hang out with you a little bit, but I'm giving myself wholly over to this gospel uh, that has saved me and changed me. Now, as always, uh, now, uh, actually, let's just, so as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the what? Leading women. This just goes to show you that the scriptures are true, because this would not be a bragging point to Jewish people in the ancient Near East. In fact, it would cause you to look at it and say, well, of course, it's for women. Uh, so anybody that says, you know, Christianity is for women, or that, you know, it's too... My, my grandfather was one of these people... And uh, he had an offensive little saying um, about, uh, are there any kids in here? Yeah, we got some kids in the back, but they're not paying the least bit of attention. So um, uh, my grandfather didn't go to church very often. And so as a little boy, I asked him, Grandfather, why don't you go to church? And he said, well, because the church uh, is like a brassiere. 
and he said it's for support, uplift, and for women, uh, which is really offensive, uh, frankly, and uh, although kind of funny. Uh, but that was his feeling, and a lot of people feel that way too, based on stereotypes and uh, misperceptions. But here Luke says, actually, uh, we want you to know that women are being converted to the gospel because they're a witness is just as effective, just as valid, and just as powerful uh, as the witness of men. And of course, this provoked uh, the Jews to jealousy. Uh, And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. Now, this word rabble, it means the the people who are just idle. No, you know, they were up to no good, who just kind of lurked around and... and, uh, didn't have the best uh, of reputations. And so they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar. And this is a city of about 200,000 people, so a pretty significant place. And they attacked the house of Jason. Well, who's Jason? Um, Actually, uh, you might probably already be aware of this. Jason was a pretty popular name in in Greece. Why? Jason and the Argonauts, right? So, I mean, that story was incredibly popular. And so it was not unusual uh, to find someone named Jason. But more than that, Jason was the closest Greek name uh, to the Jewish name Joshua. And so uh, a lot of Greek Jews, if they were Joshua, would go by Jason in that day and time. So Jason is a Greek-speaking Jew. Uh, who has taken Paul and Silas, and he's housing them in his home. And so this mob uh, goes to Jason's house, seeking them to bring them out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other Christians before the city authorities, the magistrates, and they say this, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. That's a remarkable thing to say. Uh, one, it's, it's actually not meant as a compliment. Uh, and yet, uh, when was the last time we were accused of turning the world upside down for Jesus Christ? Uh, and yet, when the gospel is preached, what happens? Things get turned upside down. Um, the story uh, that I always think of um, is that when um, Cornwallis was stuck on the peninsula in Virginia at Yorktown, Uh, The French fleet had them blockaded in, and uh, the French and uh, American armies uh, wouldn't let them uh, get through on the landward side, and so they had no choice but to uh, surrender. And of course, uh, Cornwallis said that he would surrender uh, to Rochambeau, uh, but he would not surrender uh, to Washington, uh, which is a serious breach of etiquette. And so Rochambeau said, that's not going to happen. Washington is, is going home uh, with your sword. And so when they exchanged, uh, when they exchanged, uh, when they were turning in their banners and the sword was handed over, do you know what song the British military played? The world turned upside down. Uh, why? It wasn't supposed to happen this way, right? I mean, this is crazy. What do you mean these ragtag squirrel hunters uh, in America, uh, who, you know, uh, this isn't the way that it's supposed to happen. I mean, we're supposed to be telling you what to do, and how could you not uh, want to be uh, under the authority of the crown of England? Where, I mean, the, the sun never sets on the empire, and all the economic incentives to being a part of the empire. And uh, it just, 
a remarkable thing, and if you've ever read anything about the American Revolution, David McCullough's books are great. Uh, it's a great example of just, it's mind-boggling uh, how we pulled that one off. Uh, it really, it really is. I mean, we would just be Canada today uh, if we hadn't had it, uh, but warmer. So can you imagine taking all your kids to hockey practice? <laughs> Crazy. Uh, and so in the same way, God took which, what was little of the world, what was foolish in the world, what was weak in the world, to shame the strong and the wise. Uh, so where did Jesus grow up? Nazareth, right? So Josephus, the famous historian uh, of Jesus' day, uh, a Jewish man uh, termed Roman spy and traitor, uh, he mentions something like 1,500 municipalities, areas, cities. He never once mentions Nazareth. It's not even, it's not, it's not on the map. Uh, it's not on the map. And so uh, that's where God decides uh, to plant himself. And uh, what does he grow up doing? He's a what? A carpenter. Right? I, I want you to think about that even from your own experience. I don't want to see a show of hands. Uh, but what if your children uh, decided that they would take on a role that you know, wasn't well thought of in the world? Right? And that's what Jesus, he grew up poor. Uh, really didn't have much formal education beyond uh, what he would have learned at the local synagogue and, his, and in his home. Uh, and then uh, even when he begins his ministry, uh, the people who know him best say what? Hey, in this guy, this is Mary and Joseph's son. What in the world? I mean, he's lost his marbles to the point that it want, in Nazareth, they wanted to drive him over the cliff. You can actually go see the cliff today um, where they were going to drive him off. And so, uh, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead, and then he enters in Jerusalem on a what, a great white horse? No, on a donkey, right? And then, as Adam said this morning in the sermon, he was stripped of his clothes, and he was given a crown of thorns and a robe of mockery, and they made fun of him, hail king of the Jews, and then he died a criminal's death. Now, that I can understand being very difficult for somebody who's Jewish, uh, because if you died by crucifixion, you were cursed. You were an outcast. Uh, that's not where God is. Right? Now, of course, when he comes again, how will he come? Now he's bringing the heat, right? Now he's coming in on the white horse. Uh, now he's returning at the sound uh, of the trumpet in all of his glory. Uh, and yet, uh, God uses the little things of the world uh, in order uh, to shame uh, the wise. And in the same way, he's using Paul and Silas uh, to go and turn the world uh, upside down. Now, the charge that they bring uh, about Paul and Silas is that, is that they were uh, causing, uh, acting against the decrees of Caesar and the people in the city, uh, that there was another king whose name was Jesus. Uh, there's a great book uh, by a guy named Richard Wilkin, I'm sorry, Robert Wilkin, called um, Christians as the Romans Saw Them. And so Rome early on, the way that they dealt with Christians is they actually treated them like a trade union. So there was uh, at one point in the Roman Empire where they said, that's it, we're right to work. <laughs> 
You can't unionize anymore. And actually the worst group that caused the most problems were the barbers union. Isn't that funny? Uh, and so the barbers union was a big deal and they lumped Christianity in with the unions. That anything that gave you a unity other than the emperor needed to be stamped out. And so this is a pretty powerful charge. And yet when you get underneath of it, in fact, there's a, uh, a Roman governor named Pliny uh, who writes about the Christians and sort of says as an aside, like, I hear they eat people. <laughs> and and where, where would he get that from? Communion, right. The, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so right church, wrong pew. And, uh, and so... Uh, it's this charge that they're putting up another king named Jesus uh, is uh, a strong one, but it's clearly fraudulent. Who's actually causing the problem? Who's turning the world upside down? The Thessalonians, right? The, the people who, have been in, who are inciting others to riot and, and mob. Uh, Paul and Silas are simply being faithful in doing the day-in, day-out work of the gospel. But what we see when they go to Berea is that many received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women, the women are back, of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up uh, the crowds. Whenever the gospel is preached, there are going to be problems. Uh, Jesus even said this. He said, look, uh, when the gospel is preached, and especially if you become a Christian, uh, you're going to find mothers turning against daughters, fathers against sons, uh, mother-in-laws. I think it's very funny that he only mentions mother-in-laws and not uh, father-in-laws. Mother-in-laws against uh, daughter-in-laws. All of these things are are going to happen for uh, I've come uh, with a sword. Now, Uh, Jesus is not saying, look, it's my intention to ruin your wonderful white picket fence life. Uh, But what he is saying is that when the gospel gets a hold of you, it means a total reorientation of priorities. And so we see elsewhere in Paul's journeys that uh, wherever he goes and there's a big idol trade, you you buy like little idols, uh, what happens to the idol trade? Right, so the silversmith union, they got really upset uh, with, uh, with Paul. And so that's going to happen uh, in our everyday lives. Now, I'm not one of those guys who's running out there saying we need to boycott this and, and boycott that. Uh, but uh, what I am saying is that if you're a Christian, uh, you're going to run into that tension somewhere along the way. Even if it's in your office where your partners are saying, well, this is what, let, let's do this. And there's a part of you, the Holy Spirit of God, that says, that's not right. You know, we probably shouldn't cut corners on our insurance for our employees. Right? We should actually take care of our employees in the best possible way that we can. Uh, or it may be, uh, you know, in um, you know, how uh, you, you raise your children. Uh, because that is one of the big things. I mean, my kids aren't that old. And I already hear, well, so-and-so gets... X, Y, Z. Well, that's, that's fine. I've told you the story where one of my daughters uh, I'd caught eating cookies and, uh, earlier in the day and did not eat all of her supper. And so when she, uh, 
after everybody else had eaten, I gave them all three cookies. And when she came forward to receive hers, I said, none for you. And she looked up at me and she said, this isn't fair. And I said, you want fairness? I'll give you fairness. Right? Well, actually, I gave her three cookies anyway, and I said, this is what's not fair, is that you don't deserve this, but because of Jesus' great love for you, I'm going to give you three cookies. Well, she cried because she's my sweet one. Uh, the, other one the other one who cried out, this, then the other one started saying, this is unfair. Um, I was the good kid who didn't eat the cookies during the day, and now you're giving her, you, you're, you're giving her license to sin. That's not what they said, but I think that's what they meant. And, and so I told the oldest, I said, all right, you want fairness? You got fairness. And so for the next 24 hours, we had a day of fairness. She shoved her sister. So I walked up and shoved her back, and I said, fairness. She stole something from one of her sisters. I stole something else. Fairness. That's what fairness is, getting what we deserve. Uh, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so what we're finding, I'm such a good dad. Uh, uh, the gospel is unsettling. I mean, I hear it from people. So all you're telling me is that if I want fellowship with God, all I have to do is simply put my trust in Him and believe on Him and he forgives me of everything I've ever did, am doing, and will do in my life. Yes. Full stop. Well, that's not fair. I mean, I actually had a friend of mine who uh, was actually a devout Buddhist. Uh, family uh, was um, from uh, Asia, and uh, they emigrated over, and he continued to practice it. And uh, he told me, he said, Christianity is, is unfair. And I said, well, what makes it unfair? And he said, well, uh, you believe in a personal God uh, who loves you so much that, you would, uh, that, that they would die for you, and we're left just trying to do the best that we can and hope that we come back something better in the next life. And we just do that and do that and do that and go through all of that uh, until we finally uh, make it uh, to the end of nirvana. And all you have to do is put your trust in Him, and you've got it. And I said, well, you've just articulated the nature of grace, right? What you're talking about is all on you. Well, what Christianity talks about is that it's all on God. Uh, if you do want to see uh, how, uh, what life looks like, speaking of the Old Testament, what does life look like for a faithful Christian uh, in an unfaithful world? Read Daniel. Daniel's a great book for that. Uh, like here, you know, Jesus even said it. Someone said, should we pay our taxes? And Jesus takes the coin and he says what? Yeah, render under Caesar. Look whose face this is. Uh, so Christianity is always, always, and you can see it throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, uh, a respect uh, for authority. In fact, uh, Paul and Silas left Thessalonica and went to Berea. But what we find in Daniel is that when he's finally called up before the king um, for breaking the king's law, Daniel says what? King, I have been faithful to you to the very end, but if you want me to compromise my faith or turn my back on the God of Israel, uh, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'll pay crazy taxes. Uh, I will uh, do everything that I can possibly do to honor you, uh, but you take second seat 
uh, to uh, this king, Jesus. And so the world turned on its ear. That's what the gospel does. Uh, the world turns uh, not just the world upside down, but it turns our lives uh, upside down. But if you understand the nature of grace and the person and work of Jesus Christ, uh, it is a beautiful and wonderful thing. And you want others uh, to stop their striving and their struggling and to give themselves over to Him uh, to throw in their lot uh, with the other Christians. Questions, comments, concerns? Yeah, so why is belief so important? Well, one, Jesus commands it. But I think belief is the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's proof of your salvation, that you're believing on and trusting in Jesus. And so, I mean, when we talk about it this way, just from a rational, let's reason together, it'd be pretty reasonable to get your fire insurance, right? So if I just say, I believe in Jesus, I can escape hell and, and be in heaven with Jesus, yes. I believe in him, right? So, but it's, it's not that declaration of faith. Uh, that's just an indicator uh, that Jesus has actually been working in your life and you've appropriated that salvation uh, as your own. And so, I mean, Jesus tells the parable of the uh, sower, right? Some of the seeds uh, fall on shallow soil and they spring up real fast, but then the sun uh, causes them to wither and fade away. And so uh, we see that oftentimes too, but we should never underestimate the soil and nor should we judge it um, because we never, you know, we can't put God in a box and sell the Holy Spirit short. So belief uh, is the fruit of the work of the Spirit in your life. Uh, only by the Spirit can you uh, cry, Abba, Father, can you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know if this makes any sense, but it, it, as you explain it that way, that makes perfect sense. But also, it seems like God created us in his image to be in relationship with him. And a lack of belief, a, a lack of belief would damage that relationship. That's right. So, and I mean, something as simple as your spouse. I believe that I am married to you. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but it, it, that's, that actually, marriage has a lot more implications to it uh, than that. And I don't mean obligations. I just mean the nature of the spousal relationship. So good point, Don. Yeah, speaking, Don, speaking of um, being made in his image and how you just mentioned, you know, here's the coin, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and he kind of ends it just... That's it. Right. And you feel like if you kept on talking, he'd say, and look at what image is on you. Render that unto, yeah. unto God. Be faithful. Render unto God what is God's. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not an extremist about this. And I was actually in, a, um, in an academic presentation where the presenter, uh, and actually I vetted this candidate to become the next dean and rector of the Advent, and it was based on my remembering this story that he did not become the next dean and rector, in, instead of me. Um, uh, but I didn't know I was going to be the one at that point. Uh, and he said that the Reformation was one of the most, uh, was a terrible mistake, and he's, he's an Episcopalian, and he also believed that uh, the American Revolution was an act in defiance of God. Uh, and he's an American. Uh, and I just thought, Lord have mercy. 
Um, that, that's, not, that's not what Jesus uh, was saying. So if there's an unjust uh, policy, uh, absolutely uh, we should rise up against it. Yeah, and, and another comment, an act in defiance of God, that, like your friend who said, um, you know, that it was unjust for God to be killed, for Jesus to be killed. And, every, and this is something else that, that people, going back to what you said earlier, um, minutia that people don't really argue about, but, you know, who killed Jesus? Who right. were the people that killed Jesus? Well, it's God who That's right. allowed. Yeah, our, our sin this, killed you know, Jesus. That's you know. we're, we're, we're all... We're all in the same boat on that one. All right, so I hope I'm not reciting, you know, um, inciting anybody to uh, mobbing or, uh, or, or riot uh, today. Uh, but the gospel has implications, and uh, I am grateful for those implications. Go in peace, to love, and serve the Lord.